If you're a fan of this podcast, I've got some exciting news for you. We're publishing a book, an actual book. Have you ever wondered who the third man on the moon was? Why a pigeon is a hero of the American army, and whether Napoleon was actually as small as people say he was? Well, history hit miscellany has got all the answers. It's available to pre-order now and will be published on the 28th of September. Pre-order from your favorite bookshop or visit historyhit.com slash book. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the small Mediterranean island of Cortula sits a walled city of the same name. It's a labyrinth of stone alleyways, shuttered windows and cobbled squares. You can smell the pine trees while you listen to the sounds of the Adriatic lapping at the shore. Now, according to legend, the town on this Croatian island was founded, like quite a few other places, by a hero of the Trojan War, Aeneas, Prince of Troy. And it's now also thought to be the birthplace of the great 13th century Venetian explorer Marco Polo. At least when you visit the local museum in the town, that's what they'll tell you. Cortula was then part of the Venetian Empire, that by the time Marco Polo was born in 1224, was a vast maritime power, spreading from northwest Italy, down the Croatian coast, Dubrovnik and beyond, all the way to Crete in the Aegean, and even Cyprus. This city-state's empire became a flourishing centre of trade, sitting very strategically between northern and western Europe and the rest of the world, thanks to the intrepid adventures of merchants who penetrated deep into the Byzantine Empire and beyond, even arriving in the Far East. These were explorers like Marco Polo. You'll have probably heard many of the myths around the life and exploits of Marco Polo, was he the one who really brought ice cream and spaghetti along the Silk Road to the court of Kublai Khan, where he served as a diplomat? He must have had a cool box if he took ice cream. Almost as soon as he wrote his memoir, people doubted his wild stories of his travels across Eurasia, from Venice to China. So what's true? Today I'm joined by a historian who followed in the footsteps of Polo, travelling the old Silk Road all the way to China to see for himself if the stories of this great Venetian merchant were true. Joining me now is Lawrence Burgreen on the myths and marvels of Marco Polo. Enjoy. 
Lawrence, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Tell me, Marco Polo, he's born Venetian, but he's born in Croatia. How do we describe his, or characterize his upbringing, his ethnicity, his nationality, if you like? Well, Croatia and uh, Venice were almost the same. It was part of the rather small Venetian empire. Keep in mind that Italy at that point was not unified. It was a collection of city-states, Genoa, Venice, and others. And uh, Marco Polo identified as Venetian. His father and uncle, with whom he was in the family business uh, as merchants, identified as Venetian. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was Venetian. And when he came back at the end of his long journey to the east, he came back to Venice. And what's the Phoenician Empire doing at the time? It's famously a trading empire. Is it, did we have to call it piratical? What are they up to? <laughs> I think pirate, theft, <laughs> anything you could steal, you know, and carry away on water. It was sort of notorious at that. That was the bad side, I guess. The good side is they were very efficient merchants and uh, they amassed a lot of wealth that way. They provided um, a safe haven for a number of uh, commercial interests. So I think being a pirate at that point, it wasn't like they were the worst actors out there by any stretch of the imagination. So Marco Polo and his father and uncle were part of the establishment in Venice, such as it was. It was a small place. If you've been to Venice, you know you can walk it in a few minutes. It's tiny compared to other areas, but a fantastic concentration of wealth and cultures and um, churches. So that was Marco Polo's Venice. He he came of age, though, on the trail and what we would call the Silk Road. That's a name that was applied centuries later. But he came of age on the road uh, rather than in Venice or Croatia. Yes, we should say it's a famous maritime empire, but he becomes notorious for a land journey. So how does that start? His father and uncle, this keep in mind, this was their, the famous voyage that began in uh, 1271. It was their second voyage for his father and uncle. He was then a teenager, about 16. Unfortunately, we don't really have any records of his father and uncle's voyage or trip. You know, would that we did. It would have been fascinating to compare, but we don't. And um, also, it's people sometimes assume that Marco Polo, quote, discovered China. But nothing could be further from the truth. It was well known throughout Europe, especially in trading empires like Venice. And this was yet another trip they were taking to trade with China for um, things that you could carry, especially spices and gems and things like that. They were going, actually, at that time to the Mongol Empire. The reason why is because Kublai Khan had conquered China, and he had rather skillfully merged these two disparate cultures, one that was pastoral and one that was anything but, and managed to somehow make it fairly harmonious and to invite Westerners in to trade like the Polos, but there were many others. Well, why did he want them? They often carried out tasks that he didn't trust, that's Kublai Khan, the Mongols to do, especially tax collecting. Why not? Because they tended to be corrupt on one side or the other. This happens in empires from time to time. So he tended to trust outsiders like uh, Venetians, like the Polos and others to do that sensitive job for them. 
So that was their one of their secondary reasons for going and one of the reasons why Marco Polo stayed so long. Before we go any further, I have to add a giant asterisk, and that is, what do we know about Polo? How accurate is it? And the big question, did he actually really go to China? I think he did. I think there's a lot of evidence, but the evidence that really nails it down is extremely skimpy. And it's possible that uh, there are alternate theories that he didn't actually go and do all the things that he said he did, that he gathered stories from all over, put them together in this highly entertaining travels of Marco Polo that we know. And um, that's as far as he went. That's probably unlikely, but I think there's some truth to it because his assumptions about the world and Venetians and ours are quite different. This is pre-Gutenberg. That makes a huge difference. So we're relying on a handwritten manuscript, and there are many different editions or versions of it. We wouldn't have known any of it except for a fluke that was after Marco Polo returned. He was going to stay in Venice. Then, as uh, often happened, Venice and Genoa were doing battle at sea. He was captured by the Genoese. He was thrown into a prison there. I should say it was a kind of a posh prison, VIP prison. But he was constantly, as far as we know, talking about his experiences with the legendary Kublai Khan and China. So somebody, and we don't really know how it happened, paired him with a cellmate who happened to be Rusticello of Pisa. Who he? Well, he was a second or third tier poet and uh, verse maker. He wrote down Marco Polo's account. So if not for this series of flukes, we wouldn't have heard anything from Marco Polo. And even this is a bit indirect. We don't have a manuscript in Marco Polo's handwriting. We have the Rusticello of Pisa version. And even that varies. As I was doing research, I found some editions which were reputed to be in the urtext, you know, genuine. Some were literally twice as long as others. I relied on one that had been found, I think, sort of later on, but was reputed to be the most complete. And that's the one I relied on. We'll, we'll talk about what's in it in a second. But I just wanted to explain to you how inexact it is and how difficult it is to really research this period and why some people think that this whole Marco Polo thing is just myth. I don't think it is myth, but you see the difficulties. It could be augmented truth. I tried to keep it to what was plausible. I went to China twice and retraced his steps to the extent that I could from uh, across China, starting in in Beijing, which he called Kambalak, all the way uh, west and also in Mongolia. A lot or almost anything that he described conformed to what I saw with some friends and, you know, what was there. One of the big um, objections that's levied against him is that he didn't write about the Great Wall of China. And how could he not have done that, considering it's so huge, it's visible from the moon? It's actually not. But anyway, you get the idea. Well, it didn't exist in his day. There was a small wall at that point. The Great Wall was built a century or two after he left. So if he had referred to it, this would have been very suspicious. Time and again, there were things that he talked about, which sounded very improbable, which turned out to be true, and other things which you would think, oh, he should have mentioned, but if he was actually relying on a strictly contemporaneous account, wouldn't have showed up, and they didn't. Also, 
his idea of what's up and up and what's down is down and north and south are different. And his idea of chronology is different. The travels of Marco Polo are not a diary. It's not, dear diary, we set out, oh boy, rugged day on the trail. We know we finally got to Kambalak. We met Kul. It's not like that. You know, he gathers together accounts, some of which are his own, which are scrupulously in the third person. Others are kind of a jumble. And in those days, people didn't keep first person accounts. That idea came in later, a century or two later. So he was not unusual in this respect. This is part of the challenge of dealing with so-called primary documents from that era. You know, I just tried to do the best I could in terms of what was actually plausible while noting all these, you know, asterisks that I just mentioned to you. Maybe we should get to the actual journey. Thank you for the asterisks. They're important, though. So but let's get him to China. His, so his father and uncle that you've mentioned, they go on a 10-year mission. They meet the great Khan. They come back. By this time, Marco is, what, sort of a teenager, 15, 16? A teenager. And they're back for a while. They trade in their gems. They're quite wealthy. And then they decide they're going to go back at the invitation of the Khan. I don't know how the invitation reached them, but uh, they were welcome to return. And so they went on, you know, we know as the Silk Road, but it wasn't a road. It was a series of um, paths or passageways that were used by merchants. And it was a network, but they weren't actually trading in silk. They were trading in other things. And also they had this job there, which was uh, to uh, be a tax collector slash census taker for Kublai Khan while they were there. So that gave them a um, very good uh, window on the Mongol slash Chinese empire at that time. And the Mongol empire is important, right? Because by 1250, they set out 1271. By 1250, the Mongol empire, extraordinarily, is stretches from basically Korea to the Black Sea. So you can make this journey without every single valley and river crossing, entering somebody else's little kingdom, right? Right, right. The steppe is one of the largest land masses in the world. So we went across the steppe. It is, you know, truly endless. They had a kind of pony express to convey messages back and forth. But messages and data traveled very slowly. Marco Polo got used to it. He learned various survival skills, horseback riding, how to defend himself. Although the Mongols were not necessarily that warlike at that time. But it was a different era. Curiously enough, when I went, which is now about 15 years ago, it was in some ways the same. Mongol culture is unchanging in some ways. And we stayed in some of the same places that have been there since time immemorial. We ate some of the food that they did, um, the notorious or famous kumis, which is a combination of mare's milk cut with urine and fermented. I had one swig and that was enough. Also, they're very family-oriented in a way, very peaceful, excellent horsemen, but it's a different kind of a culture. They don't believe in private property, quite unlike the Venetians. And so it was a pastoral tradition. They changed um, their homeland or their tents twice a year. They had a winter and a summer grazing ground, and they went back and forth, but they didn't claim ownership of any of it. And indeed, it was really too big to defend, the exact opposite of Venice. It was as spread out and vague and borderless as Venice was confined. So 
part of the incredible thing about this story was how these opposites managed to attract in some ways. You listen to Dan Snow's history, talking about Marco Polo. More after this. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. He makes his way across this vast, slightly borderless space, but there's enough security that he actually he's able to get across. Is there a bit of banditry? But he's not facing hostile government on the way across. Uh, no, he's not. And he had protection in the form of a primitive passport, or I wouldn't say primitive, but their version of the passport called a Paisa that he got from Kublai Khan, whom he conferred on foreigners like Marco Polo. And, you know, they carried it. It was a physical object and it was like a passport. And if he showed it to anybody, that gave him a clear path. And basically, he said he had the protection of the Khan. Anybody who harmed them, you know, would have to answer to the Khan. And that was enough to scare anybody away. He had it, his father had it, and his uncle had it. You know, I'd like to say he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, but we don't really have a chronological account. So I can very much, after the fact, try and imagine where they went and recreate their route, but it's kind of guesswork. And we think he's in China, in central China, what, by 1275? So it takes, what, you think the journey might take something like four years? Yes, at least four years, if not longer. 
And uh, he then came of age there. There's some speculation about, well, what was it like since he was there for so many years? Who became his friends? Did he, you know, it seemed to me in some ways that his spiritual beliefs changed or evolved over time from being Catholic to being very influenced by Buddhism. I don't think of Marco Polo as being particularly spiritual, but he wrote with empathy and deep feeling about Buddhism and Buddhist uh, imagery that he saw. And it seemed to have permeated his thinking to a certain extent. Now, maybe I'm reading that into the text, but that's how it seemed to me. Anyway, by the time he got back to Venice, it all fell away. Kublai Khan was still on the throne, which is pretty lucky given longevity in those days. The sense is that he recognized him. He's like, hey, welcome back. And, and were they able to bring things that he'd requested? And he was pleased with this arrival. Uh, yes, he was pleased. He was glad to see them again. And uh, it seemed like he was going to be there forever. One of the, you know, I wrote another book uh, about Columbus, the four voyages. And one of the startling things about Columbus, who was sailing much later, was that when he sailed to the east, he was using Marco Polo's travels as his main guide, even though it was, of course, extremely dated. And he expected to see Kublai Khan, even though Kublai Khan had died decades earlier. They even brought uh, Columbus, a Chinese translator, with him in order to uh, converse with the Chinese. So that gives you an idea, not just of Columbus's folly, but the influence of Marco Polo's travels. It was Europe's main guide to the East, to Asia, for many, many years. And people relied on it, you know, implicitly. And speaking of many years, Marco Polo spent a long time in China, right? So is he a prisoner? Is he invited to spend time there? What's he doing? Well, he's being a tax collector. He's traveling around. We really don't know what he did on a day-by-day basis because it's not that kind of account. It's more of a summary of parts of China that he experienced. It's almost as if he was writing a travel guide in a general way. In this part of Mongolia or China, you'll find this or find that. He does talk about customs in Mongolia that astounded Europeans, which they doubted. They thought this can't be true, but it was true. He talked about the marriage of dead children. There was a high infant mortality rate. And one of the Mongol customs was to have a marriage ceremony among these deceased children. And this seemed, you know, very unlikely and improbable to Europeans. But the Mongols actually did this. It was an an ingrained custom at that point in order to perpetuate dynastic lines and family lines. And they had a very powerful belief in the afterlife. So it made sense to the Mongolians. That was one thing that Marco Polo noted. He was also aware that China at that point, not necessarily Mongolia, was well advanced over the West by one or two centuries in philosophy and science and medicine. And that was a much more sophisticated civilization. So we think of him as going, oh, somehow back in time from Venice to a more primitive civilization. In fact, it was the opposite. He was, if you will, going ahead in time to a more sophisticated civilization. And it was, I said, it'd be a couple hundred years until Europe caught up with what was going on in China. As proof of that, he brought back a number of items and or wrote about them in his travels uh, that Europeans didn't believe or didn't know what to make of when they read uh, his descriptions. One of the most obvious things was paper money. At that point, to the extent that there was an economy and exchange, it was rather primitive. 
Of course, uh, in China, they were using some sort of version of script. And even though Marco Polo wrote about it and might even have brought it back, it didn't catch on. He also wrote about coal, very, very important source of energy and heat and how effective it was. In Europe, they were burning wood all the time and it was much less efficient. Again, it didn't really catch on. So there were a number of other innovations that he didn't bring back. Also, the Chinese had a certain kind of printing press, which he described. This was pre-Gutenberg. It didn't catch on. His innovations, they're really only innovations when they're adopted by the host culture, I guess. And most of these were not. They just didn't comprehend them. So it's a fascinating clash of cultures. And it's kind of counterintuitive in some ways. It's not what you'd think. And I think that's part of the enduring mystique of Marco Polo. Oh, I should add, there were other Marco Polos going in the opposite direction. There was Raban Sama. He was Chinese Mongolian. And at the same time that Marco Polo was going in one direction on the Silk Road, Raban Sama was going the other direction. Now, did they stop and pass each other and chat? I don't know. But I mean, it was more or less the same time. But we see what Marco Polo wrote about on the Silk Road through the eyes of a very different person in a very different culture, Rabban Salma, who also wrote about it. So to do this comparison is really fascinating because then you get a fuller picture of what the Silk Road was like. And there were others as well. I just think for a historian, this is the most fascinating kind of a material to write about. And he spent 16, 17 years in China. And he likes us to believe that he was a sort of personal confidant of the Kublai Khan, but he would have traveled around doing some tax collecting, reporting back what he saw. I guess, like many emperors through history and kings, it was convenient to have someone with no power base in the country, no previous, who's just loyal only to the emperor themselves and is kind of a useful person at court. Yes, yes, that's exactly what he was. And all that uh, sort of status, which temporarily attached to Marco Polo, when he was there, you know, the sense of protection, it all fell away once he got back to Venice. And uh, he was not believed when he came back to Venice and he was in his mid 40s, late 40s, considered a quote, old man, you know, by the standards of that day. And he went around talking about his stories. This is before the Genoa episode. It was said that children chased him down the street saying, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, tell us another lie. So his tall tales of his travels were not believed. And it was only very gradually that the truth of his travels came to be accepted as a version of reality. Had his dad and uncle died in China or had they made their way back? That's a good question. We don't know. I believe they made their way back, but so much of this is speculation. There are other scholars and historians who have written about it, such as Jonathan Spence, who's an American, and there are others. And, you know, they also have their versions. Everybody at some point winds up scratching their heads, saying, so far as we know, and the rest is speculation. So, Lawrence, so far as we know, he heads back on the maritime silk route, right? He gets a lift from the Chinese, okay. Yes, he gets a lift, and he's very lucky to survive the storms. Oh, and then I should mention, in terms of these other accounts or interpretations, which are now called counterfactual, there's a scholar named Frances Woods, and she wrote a well-known book called Did Marco Polo Go to China? And she asks tough questions about 
Could this really have happened? Is this a myth which has been perpetuated because it's convenient? And I think uh, she winds up herself, even though she starts out from a position of saying, no, no, this is a hoax. He didn't go to saying, well, you know, it's more likely or you can't really disprove the hoax. Let's put it that way. So she's the most influential of the Marco Polo skeptics. Because I went and saw myself so much of what he described, and because at least in the overall physical details, it matched, you know, I was inclined to trust it and say there's got to be some veracity to it. But his return journey, he sails via Vietnam, Malaya, India, and then reaches Hormuz, who's now uh, in the Persian Gulf. Even that, I imagine, was an absolutely extraordinary journey. And then finally, he's back in Venice. And, and he, so, yes, you say, he's not believed straight away. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. He's not believed because the, the tales sounded so far-fetched. And as I said, you know, keep in mind that without invention of movable type or the adoption of it in the West made a huge difference. So before that, you wound up with handwritten manuscripts, often stored by monks, you know, they were not widely circulated. So this information was very um, circumscribed. It was privileged and it wasn't really out there. It wasn't like he published his account and, you know, it was distributed around and people said, oh, well, that's interesting. There's nothing like that. And as I said, even the travels of Marco Polo are not really in the first person because that was not the convention then. So we're just dealing with a different time. I mean, I think they're incredibly valuable to have, and Europe relied on it for a couple hundred years. It strikes me that even if people said, well, half it could be exaggerated or speculation. Well, even if half it is true, it's still one of the most extraordinary lives and journeys in the history of the world. That's right. Also, I often wondered, what was he doing in his personal life, you know, as he was coming of age? Who were the intimate figures in his life, if any? Because there probably were some but there's nothing. We can't even begin to speculate about um, any sort of uh, partner or confidant that he might have had along the way. So as I said, there are large uh, blank spaces in the account. But it remains one of the great journeys of exploration, I suppose, in European history. I think partly because of these lacunae. It's so intriguing, you know, what's missing and what's actually there. I guess... We should say, in terms of what's there, the survival of this account is rare and precious. With the other Marco Polos, you mentioned they were going the other way from China to Central Asia and Europe. Were there others going the other way as well? Do you think Marco Polo would have met other Europeans and other Europeans doing similar jobs there? But he's the kind of the only one we've heard of. Yes, he certainly met others. He mentions them in passing, but nothing that he talks about in detail. And they didn't write accounts. I guess if you want to have a name that will survive... <laughs> Through the ages, you should write an account that's really unique and you've been the only one to go there. That's what makes Marco Polo. If he hadn't written that account, we would never have heard about him or his father or his uncle. Amazing. That's the key lesson of this podcast, folks. If you want to be remembered, write it down. It's all very well doing amazing stuff, but you've got to make sure it's written down. Right, right. Lawrence, thank you very much for bringing all your expertise and your first-hand experience of the landscapes which he traveled through. Thank you very much for bringing all to this podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.